0: welcome to the entertaining abstract podcast. I started this podcast to allow myself to have an outlet for all of the cool paranormal supernatural and just plain mysterious stories that I do not get to talk about on my other podcast bizarre and fascinating details. You see, originally we started the BFD podcast with hopes of telling these kinds of stories along with true crime, but as you can tell, true crime is a very popular genre and it kind of took over that particular podcast. So that being said, I created this secondary podcast to talk about some of the crazy and absolutely mind-blowing stories that we don't get to talk about on bizarre and fascinating details. So anyway, today we're going to kick things off with the topic of reincarnation. And this is a really interesting topic that people have a lot of really wide variety of beliefs on. It's such a strange and weird topic. And according to statistics, anywhere from 15 to 50% of the world's population actually believes in reincarnation. Now, here's what Wikipedia says about it. Reincarnation, or past lives, otherwise known as transmigration of souls is a philosophy or religious concept that the non-physical essence of a living being starts a new life in a different physical form or body after biological death. Reincarnation is a central tenet of many religions, including Jainism, Buddhism, Sikhism, and Hinduism. Although Hindu groups don't believe in reincarnation, but do believe in afterlife. This is also an esoteric belief in many streams of Orthodox Judaism, where it's found in different forms and also in some of the beliefs of Native Americans. Native Australians also believe in the afterlife or a spirit world. However, this whole rebirth and metamorphosis sort of a concept was held by Greek historic figures like Socrates, Plato, and Pythagoras. It's also a belief in various modern religions. Although the majority of denominations within Christianity and Islam do not believe that individuals reincarnate, particular groups within these religions do refer to reincarnation. And these groups include mainstream historical and contemporary followers of Cathars, Alawites, and Druze, or the Rosicrucians. So there are many people that believe that there are a set of signs That show that you could potentially have been reincarnated. Now I found this information on lonerwolf.com and it was an article that's 12 signs your soul has been reincarnated. So you can take this all with a grain of salt if you don't believe in reincarnation. But this particular site claims that when we understand reincarnation as the maturation process or evolution of soulful energy, it follows that some of us have intuitively experienced different things in our lives that reflect on the age of the energy known as our souls. It's commonly believed that many of our personal characteristics, experiences, and capabilities in this life reflect on whether we've lived before on earth. It's thought that the more we mature, the more gifted we are in certain areas of life, and the more often we go through spiritual awakening experiences. But the truth is that all of us have likely been reincarnated, although some of us have gone through the cycle more times than others. So here are some of the characteristics that you may experience according to these folks if you have been reincarnated. Number one on this list is reoccurring dreams. These are dreams that are reflections of the unconscious mind. And while repetitive dreams may sometimes signify trauma, fear, or issues that your brain is trying to process unfinished business, repetitive dreams can also potentially be a reflection of past life experiences. Many people claim to have experienced certain events, seen particular people, or gone to specific places frequently in their dreams that feel very familiar and somehow recognizable. For example, this one person had reoccurring dreams of 15th century cat- castles that they had a very distinct feeling of knowing very well yet they have never seen this before in their waking life interesting right the second thing on this list is out of place memories. There are many recorded instances of young children who have out-of-place memories that later prove to be oddly accurate in detail. While out-of-place memories could be due to simple fantasies, misunderstandings, or an incongruency in the ability to remember, there is also mounting evidence that suggests that these out-of-place memories could actually reveal connections to past lives. Hmm. Number three, you have a strong intuition. So intuition is the ability to balance the conscious and unconscious mind and to tap into the deeper wellsprings of primal wisdom and innate knowledge, according to this source I have. It's said that the more we soulfully mature, the closer we are to returning to the source known as nirvana, eternity, or oneness from which our souls come from, and from which the collective unconscious, a body of of universal knowledge exists. Hmm. I don't know about that, but interesting nonetheless. Number four, which is one that I've heard quite frequently, and that is deja vu. We've all experienced deja vu before at some point in our lives, and it is this bizarre feeling that somehow we've already experienced or lived a moment in time before. Often, deja vu comes spontaneously and is triggered by smells, sounds, sights, tastes, and various other sensations. And while some people claim that deja vu is a neurological dissonance, others claim that deja vu reflects the possibility of other dimensions, i.e. parallel universes. And still others believe it's revealing a past life experience. Hmm. Number five, you're an empath. Empaths absorb the emotions and in some instances, the physical pains of those around them, literally empathizing or directly feeling and experiencing what others experience. While identifying as an empath and absorbing the emotions of others can be seen in some instances as a physiological form of avoidance to bypass one's own problem and pin the blame on others, in other genuine cases, it can be seen as a sign of a soul that is on undergone many previous reincarnations and has refined to the point of transcending the individual self and its problems extending to others as well well that's interesting number six precognition also known as future sight or second sight precognition is the ability to obtain information about future events that isn't usually available so you're seeing the future In other words, precognition can be experienced through visions, physical sensations, and feelings, as well as in dreams. While considered quasi-scientific by some, to others, precognition is a very real experience and could indicate the maturation of soulful energy. Number seven, retrocognition. You probably guessed it. It's the opposite of precognition and refers to the ability to obtain information not usually available about past events. These past events could be in your own lifetime or sometime in the distant past. Of course, retrocognition, unlike precognition, is not easy to prove or verify. However, for those who have genuinely experienced it and have been able to honestly verify it, this ability could also be a sign of soulful reincarnation. Huh. Number eight, you feel older than your age reflects. Well, I feel that way every day. <laughs> um, some people are perpetually young at heart, even into their later lives. And in the same manner, some people just seem to have been born with old souls. The experience of feeling older than your age often reflects being reincarnated many times over and over and is echoed through a certain progression of soulful development. For example, if you have been reincarnated a few times on Earth, this would be reflected in the age of your energy, and in this life, you will display many primitive and childlike characteristics. Huh. However, if your soulful energy has been reincarnated many times over, you will display many matured and wizened characteristics, such as the ones mentioned in this article. Hmm. Interesting. Number nine, you have a great affinity for certain cultures, time periods, or environments. It is said that having a great unexplainable attraction for certain cultures or time periods is a kind of past life residue reminiscent of a certain place, culture, or environment that your soul may have experienced in past lives. For instance, you may have an inexplicable affinity to Asian culture, Celtic artifacts, or the 19th century. These can be signs that you basically have been reincarnated from one of those places or times. I've always had an affinity for Egypt. I wonder if that's something that I was part of as well. Anyway, um, number 10, unexplainable fears or phobias. As touched on in the last point, many believe that certain memories or experiences can pass on or leave residues in our childhoods and adulthood from past lives. Whether this is true or is simply a form of problem bypassing, many believe that we can experience the echoes of past traumas in our own lifetimes in the form of unexplainable fears and phobias, including the fear of drowning the fear of certain types of animals, a fear of certain places, and the fear of particular numbers, colors, objects, etc. Number 11, you feel as though this earth is not your home. The yearning to find your home can be seen as a reflection of the desire to return back to the source the oneness, consciousness, or divinity. Many people feel this journey to be reminiscent of an athlete running a long race and longing to reach the finish line. In this same manner, souls that have been reincarnated many times over express this basic need for finally completing the cycle and returning home. Feeling that this earth is not your home is often accompanied by chronic feelings of tiredness and weariness for life on earth. Anyway, speaking of number seven on this list, retrocognition... I have an interesting story, and I did share this story on one of my other podcasts, but it's always been one that I have loved and have sort of looked at as super interesting. But this is actually The Mysterious Reincarnation of Om Seti. And I got this particular article on mysteriousuniverse.org, which is a really cool website if you ever want to go check it out. But the author of this particular article is Brent Swanser, And it came out a few years ago, but it's still one that I go back to and read occasionally just because I love the story of it all. But He says, what happens to us after death? Since time unremembered, mankind has sought the elusive answer to this profound question. And there are many ideas and philosophies on what becomes of us after our inevitable demise, as there are cultures that ponder it. Is there another realm awaiting us in some afterlife? And as we are whisked away, are we whisked away to join loved ones who have long passed away? Is there nothing but blackness and oblivion out there? Is there something else? One idea that is most embraced by many religions throughout the world is that of reincarnation. And as I mentioned earlier, it is anywhere from 15 to 50% of the world's population Does believe in this concept, and that is that our soul, spirit, or whatever anyone wants to call it, is reborn upon death into a new body to live through life again. There have been many stories of those who have allegedly been reincarnated into new bodies, often expressing some vague vestigial memories of their previous lives, but one in particular stands out as very convincing and apt to make one reflect upon the possibilities. It is this strange case that fuses reincarnation with faraway lands, ancient treasures, and long-lost eras. Born in 1904 in the London suburb of Blackheath, Dorothy Louise Eadie had a normal early childhood until one day that would change her life forever. At the age of three, Dorothy slipped and tumbled down a flight of steps. This was not a minor spill. And the girl was found to be not breathing when the panicked parents called the family doctor. Their worst fears were confirmed. So this was 1904. They could not call an ambulance and have somebody come out and revive this little girl. And they basically thought she was dead at that point. She was pronounced dead at the scene and placed in her bed. And the distraught doctor went to fetch a nurse to help him prepare the body for for removal. In most cases, this would be the end of the story, but when the doctor returned with the nurse, Dorothy was found to be miraculously sitting up in bed wide awake and playing as if nothing out of the ordinary had happened to her. Not long after this frightening and bizarre ordeal, little Dorothy began to exhibit unusual and uncharacteristic behavior. She became excessively nervous, jumpy, and withdrawn. She would often hide under or behind furniture and was easily startled by even the most mundane things. She also started saying increasingly bizarre things, and on many occasions, she demanded that her parents take her home even when they were already at home, and she showed a certain sense of wonder and bewilderment at certain everyday items that she'd never shown any interest in before. Her demeanor became generally more detached and morose as well, and she often woke from vivid dreams in which she claimed to see ancient buildings with sweeping columns. One day, when she was looking at a children's picture book, she came upon a picture of ancient Egypt and became transfixed by it. Staring at it for long periods of time and saying that this was her other home, this baffled her worried parents. I mean, wouldn't it baffle you as well if your three or four-year-old child suddenly said Egypt was home, even though you grew up in England or Philadelphia or wherever? But... The strangest incident concerning Dorothy's increasingly odd behavior came when her parents took her on a trip to the British Museum in London. While meandering through the museum, they came upon an exhibit on ancient Egypt, which was full of all manner of artifacts, mummies, and majestic statues of ancient Egyptian gods and goddesses. Dorothy's eyes lit up when they entered the exhibition area, and when she came across some of the statues of gods and goddesses, she ran up to them and began reverently kissing their feet. Looking at photographs of the ruins of the Temple of Seti I, the father of Ramses the Great, she proclaimed that it was her home. But she was baffled by the lack of gardens and trees and asked why they weren't there. She also said that she personally knew Seti I and that he was a kind old man. Dorothy was completely fascinated by the various Egyptian exhibits and seemed more alive than she had been since the accident. At one point, she reportedly screamed out loud and recited words that seemed to be from some strange language no one could understand. And when her parents decided enough was enough and tried to get Dorothy to leave, she resisted, claiming she wanted to stay there among her people. Very odd indeed, right? The fateful trip to the museum would not be the last of the weirdness, and indeed it only got worse as Dorothy got older. Her Sunday school teacher claimed that she denounced Christianity as being similar to heathens and suggested that her parents withdraw her from the class because she was upsetting other children. So her Sunday school teacher was like, nope, (laughs) we're not doing this. Um, She also had refused to sing a hymn that requested for God to curse the Egyptians. This got her kicked out of the school she went to. When Dorothy was taken to Catholic Mass, she made the odd comment that she liked it because it reminded her of the old religion which unnerved some around her. In the meantime, Dorothy would make many more trips back to the museum to fawn over the ancient Egyptian exhibits. And between the ages of 10 and 12, she made numerous trips to the museum, indeed spending most of her free time there. And it was there that she eventually met a man by the name of E.A. Wallace Budge. He was a keeper of the Egyptian antiquities at the British Museum Museum, and he was impressed by her enthusiasm and knowledge of Egyptian artifacts, and he also encouraged her to try studying hieroglyphics. This is when she started taking classes on hieroglyphics, and her teacher was astounded by how fast she picked it up. She made very quick progress on a subject that took many people lots and lots of years to grasp but when asked how she could learn complex symbols so fast she gave the cryptic response that she was not really learning them from scratch but rather being reminded of her old language that she had long ago forgotten. Throughout her early teen years Dorothy threw herself into the study of books on ancient Egypt at the local library showing a profound and intuitive knack for it. During World War I, Dorothy relocated to her grandmother's house in Sussex after a bombing raid, and she spent most of her time at the library there to continue her studies on ancient Egypt. It was around this time, when she was about 15, that she began to be repeatedly visited in her dreams by a spirit called Hora, which told her that she was the reincarnation of a woman named Ben Treshit who had long ago been a priestess of the Temple of Seti I at Abydos, Upper Egypt. Hora would frequently visit Dorothy in her dreams over a period of twelve months and told her the story of her previous life. She was told that she had become a consecrated virgin of the Temple of Seti I but had broken her vows by engaging in an affair with Seti. Rather than face certain horrific death at the hands of the high priest, she had opted to commit suicide, and this was not unusual at the time for that sort of an infraction. But Dorothy would write down dream journals of what the spirit told her in hieroglyphics, and by the time she was done, she had written about 70 pages of her story, all in ancient Egyptian. These visitations also led to severe bouts of sleepwalking and nightmares, which became so bad that she had visited a mental hospital on several occasions for observation. Yeah, no kidding, right? Dorothy left school at the age of 16 and toured a variety of historical sites and ruins around Britain, including places like Stonehenge with her father. She would later move to Plymouth and become a student at the Plymouth Art School, where she began to collect a wide assortment of Egyptian antiquities in her free time. She also participated in several drama presentations on ancient Egypt, taking on the role of the goddess Isis. She also became politically involved in working for the goal of an independent Egypt and took a job at the Egyptian public relations magazine, where she wrote articles and drew political cartoons to this end. It was around this time that she met an Egyptian student by the name of Imam Abdel Meguid where she ended, this is, she ended up marrying this guy, and it was at this time in her life that Dorothy would finally go to the land she had dreamed about for so long, when she went to live there with her husband in 1931. It's said that as soon as she arrived there, she fell to her knees and kissed the ground, proclaiming that she was finally home. She would go on to have a son named Iman, who she nicknamed Seti, and this is where her nickname Om Seti comes from, with Am meaning the mother of, and Seti being the nickname for her son. Dorothy's marriage would prove to be short-lived, and they went their separate ways in 1935, when Iman got a teaching job in Iraq, and she refused to leave her beloved Egypt. She moved to live near the Giza pyramids, and it's there where she met archaeologist Selim Hassan, who was very impressed by her in-depth knowledge of hieroglyphics and ancient Egyptian history. It was through Hassan that she would get to work at the Egyptian Department of Antiquities. She was the first woman ever to do so, and she worked mostly as a draftsperson and a secretary at first, but went on to become an invaluable advisor to the scholars with her extensive knowledge of ancient Egypt. She also was a prolific writer on the subject and skilled illustrator of ancient sites. In particular, Hassan found Dorothy's knowledge, artistic skills, and advice so helpful that he credited her with being invaluable in writing his 10-volume series on his excavations at Giza. Indeed, Dorothy's expertise in Egypt history, hieroglyphics, and antiquities allowed her to become acquainted with many famous Egyptologists and archaeologists at the time. Notably, she was hired as a research assistant by the renowned archaeologist Ahmed Fakhtri to help with his Dasher Pyramid research project. During these years, Dorothy showed various idiosyncrasies that caused a few eyebrows to be raised, and she would sometimes spend the night at the Great Pyramid of Giza. She was known to venture out in the evenings to perform strange rituals, say prayers, and make offerings to Horus at the Great Sphinx. Despite these eccentricities, she was so well-respected for her work and so knowledgeable on all things ancient Egypt that none of her colleagues really thought much of it. It wasn't until she made the journey to Abydos, the location of the very temple of her dreams, where she was convinced she had lived in a past life. This is where things take a turn for the truly bizarre. Dorothy's move to Abydos came after the collapse of Thackeray's Doshier project in 1956, when she suddenly found herself unemployed and decided to take a job as a draftswoman at Abydos. This was a move that was commended by King Seti I in her dreams. He also allegedly proclaimed to her that the wheel of fate was in motion and that this would be a time of testing for her. She decided to make her home in a humble, modest village near the temple where she would be called Om Seti more and more until it was how almost everybody addressed her. Om Seti's main job at Abydos was to chronicle and translate blocks within the ruins of the temple of Seti I at Abydos to copy down various inscriptions within the temple as well as to draw up plans of the architecture there. All of these things she was exceedingly and intuitively good at. She also was known to remove her shoes when entering the temple, perform rituals, give offerings, and worship the ancient gods that she believed resided there. She spent so much time at the temple that she even turned one of its rooms into her office, which probably you'd never be able to do today, but this was back in the 30s and 40s, so she was allowed to get away with it evidently, but um, Amseti remained invaluable to research on ancient Egypt while in Abydos and was heavily relied upon for her incredible ability to translate notoriously difficult texts in hieroglyphics and confounding works of art that were that even experienced researchers had trouble with, despite her lack of any real extensive formal training in that area. In addition to her translation skills, Am said he displayed a deep understanding of ancient Egyptian customs and traditions, as well as a phenomenal grasp of folk medicine and various obscure religious practices. She was also often consulted on the finer points of these things. She even wrote a series of books and articles on the subject of ancient folk and religious traditions for the American Research Center in Egypt in the 1960s. Throughout all of this, Amsteadi showed an innate knowledge of such things that seemed to go beyond the mere study that she could have obtained from books. Am Seti also immediately started demonstrating knowledge of the temple Seti I at Abydos above and beyond what any layperson could possibly have known through merely reading books or articles on the subject. And indeed, these things were not found in any sources to begin with. On one occasion, the director of the Department of Antiquities decided to test out Om Seti's claims of a past life there, and she was told to stand in near darkness in a room where there were a series of wall paintings. She was then asked to locate and identify each one based on her supposed memories alone. It is alleged that on each and every instance, Om Seti successfully located, identified, and described in detail each Painting, even though she'd never seen them before, and none of the paintings or their exact locations had ever been published in any source. Om said he continued to exhibit an uncanny and somewhat unnerving ability to locate important lost archaeological sites as well, from what she fervently insisted was memory rather than any kind of research. On one occasion, she told archaeologists to dig in one spot because she remembered a garden being there in the past. And when these guys dug the site up, they discovered that the garden of the Temple of Seti had been there. And no one had known that it existed there or exactly where it would be. And it was exactly where Om Seti said it would be. She was also able to locate several important artifacts from where she remembered them being and was on the mark every single time. Amseti became so renowned for her ability to find lost sites and artifacts that one English Egyptologist once famously stated during a dig, if Amseti were still here, I'd take her word for where things can be found any day over the most state-of-the-art equipment out there, much to the approval of his colleagues who all agreed. This was a common sentiment in the field regarding Amseti, and she was highly sought after as an advisor on a variety of digs by top archaeologists and Egyptologists. On another occasion in the 70s, Almstedt proclaimed that she knew the secret location of the highly sought-after tomb of Nefertiti, which has long eluded efforts to find it. She described it as being in a most unlikely place in the valley of the kings near Tutankhamen's tomb. This went against all common knowledge at the time that no new tombs were to be found in the valley, and so the claim was not taken particularly seriously, even considering Almstedt's impressive knowledge of Egypt. However, in 1976, they did some sonar readings of the ground near Tutankhamun's tomb, and it pinged a couple of times. But it was not until 1998 when anyone would make a serious effort to investigate the anomalies. When an expedition led by archaeologist Nicholas Reeds began to dig in the vicinity and discovered several intact tombs of the famous 20th dynasty scribe wen Nefer, whose seals adorned many tombs from the era. In 2000, another radar scan of the site produced evidence of two previously unknown chambers deep underground. But this expedition had to be halted due to an investigation into the suspected theft of priceless antiquities. In 2006, another expedition penetrated into one of the chambers and found extremely well-preserved equipment and supplies used for the mummification of elite royals. This led people to the speculation that another chamber would be discovered and it would be the sealed tomb of a king, just as Amsteadi had predicted. Above and beyond her intimate and seemingly innate knowledge of ancient Egypt, other bizarre attributes were reported for Om Seti as well. People in the village where she lived in Abydos claimed she was unafraid of cobras and could spellbind them, after which she would feed them from her hand like pets without being bitten. She was also believed to have powerful medicinal abilities. It was said that she was able to make use of the magical, curative waters of the sacred pool. That she lived near to heal herself as well as others of various ailments. In addition to her claims that the pool had cured her arthritis, appendicitis, and allowed her to stop wearing glasses, several villagers also claimed that the waters had cured them of a wide range of afflictions, from respiratory illnesses to hearing and vision difficulties. Om said he was said to be especially good at curing impotency through what she said were spells written in ancient texts. Very, very interesting. Although most archaeologists and Egyptologists were hesitant to put any weight into her well-publicized claims of reincarnation or her purported healing abilities, there was no denying the remarkable contributions of Amseti and what she had done for the field of Egyptology. But researchers were hesitant to call Amseti a crackpot. She was seen as eccentric, though she was never derided for it. Those who knew her described her as remarkably sane, despite her far-out claims. There were also many in the field who were somewhat confounded by her unerring faculty of ancient Egypt, which left them scratching their heads over how to react to her claims of reincarnation, which no one publicly acknowledged, but perhaps secretly wondered at. Through it all, Seti's sincerity was never called into doubt, and the Egyptologist James P. Allen once said of her eccentricities, Sometimes you weren't sure whether Seti was pulling your leg. Not that she was a phony in what she said or believed, she was absolutely not a con artist, but she knew that some people looked at her as a crackpot, so she kind of fed into that notion and let you go either way with it. She believed enough to make it spooky, and it made you doubt your own sense of reality sometimes." No matter what Amsteadi said, the results she produced spoke for themselves. She was, in fact, remarkably well-respected in the fields of archaeology and Egyptology, and scholars were quick to hail Amsteadi's miraculous, impressive knowledge of ancient Egypt, with many of the top researchers of the field relying heavily on her observations as source material. Amsteadi served as a consultant and a ghostwriter for numerous research papers and books on the subject for some of the biggest names in the field. It was a pretty impressive feat for a woman who had practically no formal education on the subject and was officially just a mere draftswoman. Egyptologist Klaus Baer of the Oriental Institute once said she had visions and worshipped the ancient Egyptian gods, but she understood the methods and standards of scholarship, which is usually not the case with nuts, nor did she desire to convert anyone. Om was officially set to retire in 1964 due to a mandatory retirement age, but she was so useful and knowledgeable that the Antiquities Department made an exception for her and let her continue to work until 1969. Even after her retirement, Om he continued to serve as a consultant for the Antiquities Department, as well as a guide for tourists visiting the Temple of Seti until her death on April 21st, 1981. Her passing left a gaping hole in the field of Egyptology and a wake of wonder and mystery as to who she had actually been. Was she merely Dorothy Edie or was she the ancient Egyptian priestess? Speculation over the years has focused on how exactly this relatively uneducated woman had come to her knowledge of the intricacies of all things ancient Egypt. Was this all truly from memories acquired from another life and another age, or had she merely picked up all of her knowledge over her many years of intense interest and armchair study of the subject, gradually absorbing enough to be unrivaled even by top scholars? How had she known where all of those lost sites and artifacts had been? Regardless of what the answers to these questions may be, no one has ever doubted the invaluable contributions that Amsetti made to the field." What becomes of us when we pass on? Is there the possibility that we pass into a new body and that our past memories can linger, perhaps even come bursting forth into our consciousness? When we die, do we change bodies, like we change clothes, awakening within another life, perhaps in a completely different era? No matter what we believe, the bizarre and intriguing case of Dorothy Om um, Seti Edi certainly seems like enough to make us wonder, and it has remained one of the most inexplicable and debated cases of alleged reincarnation that there is. This is such a fascinating topic, and one that I have looked at Extensively over the years, and for that reason, this will probably be a two or three-part series because there are other super, super fascinating stories about reincarnation and about young children that is supposedly being been reincarnated as well. So we will definitely keep an eye on this subject and bring you guys more stories about it. Okay, we're going to go ahead and wrap the podcast up for the day. Please rate, review and subscribe if you guys enjoyed our new podcast. And if you have any questions, comments or suggestions, you can always send us an email at lightningrodinfo at gmail.com we will throw that into the show notes for the show today as well as all the sources for the articles and the information that we provided on the show today we hope that you guys will tune in next time to hear all these amazing stories and enjoy the entertaining abstracts that we are creating for you good night folks tune in next time